As Dustin mentioned very early in the service, this is kind of the first Sunday of Advent, and so as a part of that, uh, we want to do some things with some Advent candles. And so I'm going to invite Steve and Jill Martin. They're going to come this morning, and they're going to light for us what's known as the candle of hope, sort of the first candle. It's also known as the candle of prophecy because hope was such a foreign thing, such a thing not known. But in Romans chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, prophecy and hope come together when it says these words. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. That candle being lit is hope towards us, as verse 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Part of what this whole Advent season is about, part of what Christmas is about, is hope. And we want a light to remind us of that, to shift gears. Every now and then, I stumble onto articles that I am pretty confident that I'm not going to enjoy reading. But there's sort of this compulsion inside that says, you better read this article. In August or September, I don't remember the exact date. My family will be shocked that I don't remember the exact date, but I don't. Sometime in those, one of those months, I stumbled onto one of those articles, and the title of the article was Dying of Despair. I know what you're thinking. You really want to read that article too. I can just tell. I can see it in you. You just, oh, I've got to read that article. That sounds so good. Basically, it's a very sobering article. It's an article trying to give some insight into why in the United States culture, in our country, why in every age bracket under the age of 75, suicide continues to increase. More and more people under the age of 75 have been taking their lives and sociologists and psychologists and all those people studying those kinds of things are trying to make sense of why is that happening? What is going on? I don't believe any article, at least one as short as this one, really could give a complete answer. But I was intrigued by the factors, the things they, they began to bring out, sort of the issues they said, hey, this is what we think could be a factor behind this. Now, they were referring to sociologists, and sociologists like to study culture and really like to study the changes in our culture. And they zeroed in on two that they said might be significant factors. One was the fact that over the last number of years, depending upon how you want to draw the line, I think 1960 forward is probably a good demarcation, but since about 1960 on forward, marriage has kind of been in retreat. Less and less people want to get married. For whatever reason, marriage isn't the thing it was in our culture anymore, and so it's decreased. Another factor that was raised by sociologists is the fact that religious participation so people, you know, attending church and people doing sort of spiritual connected things was also retreating. And you can say, yeah, I mean, since 1968, you, that's a demarcation year. That's clear. It's, it's, it's gone down. Say, so, well, what's the big deal? I mean, marriage has gone down. Religious participation has gone down. Why does that matter? 
Well, what sociologists and those that study these things have included, and this is the phrase the article uses, they'll use the expression they believe as a result of those two changes that a lot of Americans, or they use the word many Americans, have lost, and I'll get their wording right, are losing the narrative of their lives. Now, the idea is there's things that used to kind of help us make sense of life, okay? Marriage was something that used to help make a lot of people make sense of life, and and religious participation used to help people make a lot of sense of life. But as those have decreased, as those have reduced and kind of gone into the background of people's lives, kind of hiding behind the trees, so to speak, a lot of people have found themselves kind of confused. They don't quite have a framework to make sense of all of life. You say, well, why does that matter? Why do we need a framework? Well, because they went on to say, if you don't have that kind of framework, that context, then a lot of people, and they again use the phrase, many Americans don't have a sense of meaning or hope in life. Meaning and hope in life are kind of evaporating. It's, It's going away. Maybe the easiest way to explain it was the shortest sentence. Why is this such a big deal? The shortest sentence in the article basically said this, and I quote, we can't live without hope. If we don't have hope, we can't live. It's that direct. Despair and its cousins, fear and anxiety, are destructive. When despair shows up, it pushes out hope out of our lives. And if hope's gone, then we're literally hopeless and we're really just filled with despair. Sad thing about despair is it will knock on our door in a lot of different ways. Despair can knock on the door of our life because of medical or health issues. Despair can knock on our door because of job or financial issues. It can become a very real pressure and we can have a sense of despair. We haven't even touched on the fact that if you have relational struggles, That can become a huge issue. That can create despair inside us. And then another one of those articles that I stumbled onto has said, in the last year or so, in the political environment in our country, the level of anxiety and despair goes up. There's actually a phone number, a 1-800 number that for anxiety. People have been calling that more and more and more and more, and the main reason is they don't know how to handle the political context we're in. That's causing despair. Now, we've already mentioned, hey, today's the first day of Advent, you know, the time of waiting and preparing for the coming of the Messiah, the the coming of the Lord Jesus, and in our terms, hey, that's Christmas. And we probably equate Christmas because of things like marketing campaigns, and I'm told sort of the big ad the last few years, and it is again this year, is we equate Christmas with someone giving us an SUV, a brand new SUV with a great big bow on it. That's Christmas. And so we're thinking, why would you be talking about despair if somebody's going to put a brand new Lexus SUV in my driveway with a bow on it? That's not despair. Why are we even bringing up despair? Why are we talking about this? Why are you referring to depressing articles? Why are the lights low? Because for a very real reason, we need to understand that the journey of Advent starts in thick darkness. 
it starts in a place of despair. And I realized I forgot to tell you that you should turn to Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 this morning, which I'm about to do, but I can cheat because I have my tag in my Bible already there. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 573. But let me read Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah chapter 8 is set in the place, in the context of the reign of King Ahaz of Judah and King Pekah of Israel. It's a bleak time. There is no way around it. If you read the first eight chapters of Isaiah, there's a lot of bleakness. Why? Well, for the simple reason, because the people of Israel and the people of Judah chose to reject God. They chose to reject His Word. Things were not good. Things were dark. Things were gloomy. Distress was at home. Now, I don't think any of us want distress. But that's exactly where Advent starts. That's where the journey begins. Again, that's why the lights are barely on on the trees. That's literally why the manger scene is empty. Because life seemed hopeless. It seemed like there'd be nothing. Why do you and I need to remember that? Why do we need to remember the bleakness? Well, as Dustin already read, let's reread Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will, no, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought them into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Despair is real. But Isaiah wants us to know that despair doesn't have to be permanent. It's reality, but it doesn't have to be ultimate or permanent reality. The whole idea really of Advent is that God's Advent journey changes things. That as dark and gloomy as life can be, it doesn't have to stay there. That really is the message of verse 1. That's really what Isaiah is wanting to communicate. And to make that clear, to help us see that message, help us hear that kind of there is something more. There is hope. Quickly, let me share three observations out of this verse that we need to, I think, see to really understand what God is going to change. First observation is simply this, is that God is part of the darkness of life. Okay, God's a part of the darkness of life. When the people stray, the people had done that, and they'd done that repeatedly for hundreds and hundreds of years. When they stray, sometimes God did some things to deepen the darkness. Okay, the verse talks about former times. He brought into contempt. God deepened the darkness they were in. Now, He doesn't do that because He's mean. He does that out of love and concern. He wanted them to realize where they were going was bad. The idea of, of contempt in verse 9 is that God brought the people low so they would sense that they had a need. Here's a huge truth that 
may not be in our heads a quick connection to Christmas, but it should be a quick connection to Advent and should be a quick connection in our souls. We need this in a sense. Though conviction is hard, though God bringing us to face our darkness seems hard, it's an incredible gift from God for our good. See, the journey out of despair has to start with us recognizing we are in despair. We live in a time and a place when if we start to feel some unease in our souls, we're going to do some things to deal with that. But usually what we do to deal with that is we deny it, we avoid it, or we blame it on somebody else. And yet at some level, we have got to come face to face with the fact that there's despair in my soul. And until I acknowledge that, I'm in a bad spot. See, if you and I don't acknowledge we've got despair, what we're really functionally doing is we're opening the door in our lives to fear and anxiety which basically then gives despair permission to stay as long as it wants. And if despair is staying in you, then instead of being ruled by God, you're ruled by despair. And if despair is ruling you or me, we will never see the help that God is offering. Until you and I realize God convicts us to bring us to the place of realizing, I need help. And God wants to help. Please understand this. In your despair, God may do some things to bring you low, but He does that to help. Look really quickly. It'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, God in the midst of a dark spot. Where is He? What does God say? Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God says, I'm going to, yes, you need to know where you are, but I'm right there with you to get you out of it. Which really leads to the second observation coming out of verse 1, simply this, God offers hope. Okay, yes, God might have to bring us to the place where we see we're in darkness, but He does that so we can see His hope, so we're in a place where we can receive this incredible thing. Huge Advent truth, huge Christmas truth, is that God wants to offer us hope in exchange for our despair. He doesn't want us to stay in despair. He says, here, give me your despair. I want to give you my hope in full and complete measure. I mean, look at the end of verse 1. God makes glorious the way that had been overrun with darkness. It was gloomy. It was terrible. And yet, what does God do? God brings it bright. The journey of Advent is the journey of walking in the way that was dark, but now is glorious. I don't know what's all happening in your life. You might be sitting there saying, I've got a lot of despair. This is going to sound a little mean at first. Great! Because God's wanting to take you from there, but not, this doesn't mean God's going to take you from Sioux City to Hawaii. What it means is God's going to make Sioux City glorious. He's going to make glorious things in and around us. 
What was dark, he makes glorious. The journey of Advent we need to realize is the journey that starts in an empty manger. But into an empty manger, God's going to bring the Lord Jesus. So all of a sudden, the manger's going to be full. But the manger's not just going to be full. See, the manger leads us to the cross. And the cross leads us to the tomb. And the tomb's going to be empty. And the tomb's empty so that you and I can be filled with hope. That's what Isaiah wants us to hear this morning. Third observation, and this is the geek in me, but this is important. Overview observation of verse 1. Verse 1 is talking about future events in the past tense. Now, grammatically, that's fascinating. We can all salivate over grammatical exciting things. Why even mention that? Two reasons. One would simply be this. God is declaring to us that He's going to do something. And here's the part we're going to love. Waiting's involved. It's future, but waiting's involved. That's a part of what we need to see. Second reason why I think He says it, which maybe kind of builds on that or is deeper than that even, maybe is another way to say it, is that by writing about a future thing in the past tense, God is confirming He's doing it. It's not, I might do this in the future, it's, I've done this in the future. Which in part means, folks, as God calls us to wait, we can with confidence have the hope He's going to do it. Hope isn't a, I hope He does it. Hope is a confident reality, realizing this is going to come to pass. God wants us to have hope. The last number of months, in a lot of different ways, God has been using things to help me realize I've been shaped by a whole lot of things. And the things that shape us impact us. So you and I, and I'm going to include you in my little world for a second, I'm going to guess a lot of us have been shaped by things like fear and anxiety and despair at different times. And that then begins to impact then how you and I look at life, how we look at life and even what we see. Sometimes we can be so skewed in what we see that if hope knocked on our door, we wouldn't even recognize it. We wouldn't even know it. So Isaiah says, hey, let me paint a picture. Actually, let me paint two pictures for you, two pictures of what hope looks like. So in verses 2 and 3, he says, hey, I'm going to tell you what hope looks like. So you'll know when it shows up. Okay, picture number one, what does hope look like? Well, hope looks like light invading the darkness. Okay, light's going to invade the darkness. Into the darkness of our despair, God brings light, the light of hope. Verse 2 reads, and the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We can be in darkness. Verse 2 saying, but I'm going to shine light. I'm going to bring light. It's going to show up. Huge thing to notice here. This hope showing up isn't something we can produce. We don't make the light. It's shone on us. God does that. And you say, well, how does God bring light into our lives? 
Well, back to that empty manger. That empty manger is going to be filled. And the one who fills that manger is the one who in John chapter 8 verse 12 describes himself by saying what? The verse reads, and again Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God says, here's how you're going to know that hope is around. My son is going to come. He is literally the light of the world. And he can put that light. He's gonna, that light's going to invade your life. It's coming from the outside. It's not coming from you and me. It's literally the gift of God to us. He brings it. And here's the thing. The Lord Jesus came to bring light, to bring hope. If you and I repent of our sin and trust the Lord Jesus, what is this verse telling us? That light now is in our lives. And if we walk with the Lord Jesus, if we follow Him in daily life, that hope isn't just something around us, that light isn't just something with us, but it literally then can become a shelter and a shield from the winds of despair that are inevitably going to blow as you go through the road of life. But He brings that. How would I know if there's hope? Because Jesus came to bring light to you. How else would I know? Picture number two. It's not just light, but it's also joys inserted. Light never comes alone. Not when it's God's light. Joy is going to come too. Joy will be brought with it. Okay? Verse three, Isaiah continues, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. God did that. God inserts joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when when they divide the spoils. Interesting, when when Isaiah is writing these words and he's talking about Zebulun and Naphtali, these were the northernmost sort of tribes of Israel. They were on the northern edge of the country, and the way geography worked there was the invading armies always came from the north. So Zebulun and Naphtali always took the brunt of the beatings. They were crushed. They were dark. It was despair. And yet God says, guess where I'm going to bring joy? Free aside, guess where Jesus grew up? Go home. Not right yet. When you go home, you can Google this. Don't Google it now because I'll find that out somehow. Maybe. But Google and figure out where Nazareth is. Guess which part of Israel it's in. It's in the northern part. It's in the depressed part. Guess what? God says, I'm going to bring joy there. I'm going to bring it. I'm going to increase it so that you can rejoice. See, the point of the Advent season is, yes, it is dark. It is gloomy. But he brings hope. How does he bring it? By increasing joy. By bringing joy in the darkest place. Big question to ask. How do we get light? How do we get joy? I mean, Isaiah says, here's what God's going to do. But how's God going to do that? How does hope come? Well, very quickly, this invading joy and this or invading light and injected joy is a result really of three gifts. 
And maybe I, instead of calling them gifts, we could say, that's the picture. Here's the paint that's going to be used. So gift number one, paintbrush number one, so to speak, is God's going to bring freedom. God is going to bring freedom. Look at verse 4 with me. The yoke of His burden and the staff for His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. Verse 4, Isaiah basically is, so to speak, you could say plagiarizing. He's pulling word images, picture images. The first three come from the people of Israel living in slavery and bondage in Egypt. And the last one from the book of Judges when God used Gideon to get rid of the Midianites. The first three really are, are talking about oppression in life, the, the things that can weigh us down. The yoke and the burden is probably just speaking about how just life in general sometimes can be very difficult for us. Just, just general daily life in a fallen, broken world can make the stress, can bring it despair into our souls. The idea of the staff seems to be that there can be things in life sometimes that smack us unexpectedly. Things can happen, okay? No one expected. One of my mom's biggest struggles with what's going on in her life is, your dad just died. I didn't expect this. None of us did. That's not very reassuring to say to your mother, but none of us did, okay? Sometimes things just happen. That causes distress. That causes despair. The, the rod and the, and the rods there and the oppressor is probably a reference to the fact that there's enemies, there's tyrants, there's things and people against us that just engage us. We may know they're there, but they're going to come and still cause distress. But here's the incredible good news. Yes, there are things that can oppress us. Yes, there are things that can bring distress into our souls, lead us to despair. God breaks it, all of it. You know, the, the imagery of Gideon, fearful little Gideon with an army of 300 equipped with trumpets. What are trumpets for? Making joyous noises. What are torches for? Light. And what do they do? They take on literally the world power of the time and they're taken care of. In the midst of distress and oppression and all those things, God can literally give you and I freedom. He's going to bring freedom. How's hope going to come? Because He's going to give us freedom in our souls. Freedom that comes partly very much through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Freedom from the burden of sin. He'll do it. Gift number two, paintbrush number two. Maybe this is the paint, so to speak. God's also going to end war. Isaiah wants to continue, and so he says in verse 5, hey, war's going to end by saying this, for every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned for fuel for the fire. Verse 5 is anticipating that time when warfare will end completely, worldwide, it'll be done. And all the stuff that was needed in war, he can repurpose. I mean, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 kind of told us, hey, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be repurposed. So here's this pile of old boots and uniforms. What are those good for? Well, we 
got to heat our house somehow. Let's burn them. And the whole reason why there's a bonfire, why this is going to take place, is because God the warrior ends the battle. God is going to end all of that. He is going to bring complete victory. And He basically invites us to share in the incredible joy of that, in the incredible light of that. War ends because hope is fulfilled. Please don't miss that there's sort of a great truth underlining this. This verse is reminding us that God fights for us. God fought for the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 14 as they were sort of, you want to say, between a rock and a hard place. They were between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, and they were unarmed. And what did God do? God fought for them. God fought for us on the cross. Jesus, the ultimate warrior, engaged in a battle you and I could not fight. God fights for us so that He can give us hope in exchange for our despair. God wants to give you His hope, the gift of His hope, in exchange for your despair. Folks, without the Lord Jesus, we cannot fight this battle. But with the Lord Jesus fighting for us, He took on literally the greatest enemies we would ever face, our sin and death, and He defeats them, which truly means if you and I turn from God to sin and trust the Lord Jesus to be your Savior, we can live in hope. And please understand, that means we can live in hope even if we are facing physical death. Here's what He's giving, His incredible hope. Well, how can God bring freedom and how can God end war? Well, the third gift that he wants to remind us of is simply this, that God sends the best leader. God sends the best leader. This is a big job. Who's going to do it? The best leader. Look at some very probably familiar words. First part of Isaiah chapter, six, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. The reason war can end, the reason freedom can come, is because of this unique individual. He is on one hand a child born. He's literally, Jesus was born of Mary. Mary was pregnant. Mary had to go through labor pains, all of that, and Jesus was born. But He wasn't just a person. He wasn't just fully human. He was also a son given. He literally was the Son of God, given by God. So in this unique combination of fully human and fully God, Jesus comes and He literally is the leader. The government can rest on. I don't know what our government rests on right now. I don't. I know what government ultimately will rest on, and that is on Jesus. Solid, secure. Say, why do you say, why do you say He's such a great leader that it can all rest on Him? Well, because Isaiah says there's four traits about Him. We've heard these traits before, but quickly, let me just go through them. What are these traits? Well, one is Jesus is marvelously wise. Why could He be the great leader? Because He's marvelously wise. Second half of verse 6 says, and His name shall be called, what? Wonderful Counselor. 
wonderful counselor is telling us that Jesus is incredibly wise. Unlike our leaders and our electorate, that means you and me, we're not wise enough. We're not smart enough. We don't really know. But this is proclaiming that Jesus does know, that He is wise. He knows what's best. Why as a church do we say we want to be people who pray? Because we're really not smart enough to do this on our own. We need to turn to the one who is wise enough. Question, where's prayer in your life? I'm pretty sure it needs to be more prominent than it is. Why? Because we're not the wise counselor, but there is one who is. Second trait that gets described there, and he's, he's, he's amazingly wise, marvelously wise. Jesus is also the champion warrior. Okay, the second, hand, the second part of the verse again, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The word translated mighty is, is a military term. It really goes back to the God fighting force. It, it's telling us Jesus is the warrior who always wins. He's not going to be defeated. Jesus can and will remove our oppressive burden of sin. He'll bring victory. So here's a really important question again, I think, that's critical for us to answer. Who are you going to follow as you leave this room and go into the battle of life? Who's going to be your general, so to speak? Or maybe we're a platoon and who's going to be our sergeant? Whatever level you want to look at. Who's going to be your leader? Third trait. How else is he described? Well, Jesus is also described as the one who is permanently compassionate. The verse goes on to say what? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. We're reminded that the Lord Jesus is not indifferent to us but that He's compassionate and that He will always do for us what is in our best long-term interests. Sometimes that means we've got to go through some hard things, yes, but only for a season because God has so much more for us. Fourth trait, what else does this amazing leader do? Well, He's also what I would call the chief of completeness. The verse ends with those words, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When the word peace is used in the Bible, the word shalom is always in the background. It has about the idea of completeness or wholeness. See, Jesus isn't just a warrior who is going to remove oppression and end war. The truth is, because of despair in our lives, we've been marked by that. We need to be healed by that, healed from that. We, we need to be brought to a completeness in our souls. He's the one that can do that. So much so that if you and I trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior, if we trust Him who is the Prince of Peace, God the Father, in the name of His Son, sends the Holy Spirit to literally work in our lives 
to heal us and to transform us and to bring us to a place of maturity. And that place of maturity is really a place of wholeness. It's a place of completeness. He brings it. He does it. It's still dark in the room. We still need help. We're not there yet. And the truth is, as the month of December unfolds in your life and history unfolds, there's going to be more despair knocking at your door. So you sit there and go, it's dark. I know I need help. Am I ever going to see it? Look at verse 7 that ends the passage. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In the midst of your despair, please hear verse 7. God is promising, He's pledging, He's committed Himself that hope will come. This Advent journey is about us leaning away from our despair and leaning toward the holy hope that is found only in Jesus. Hope will come. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So then the question becomes, are you and I looking to and waiting for Jesus for the hope we need? Let's pray.